Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Blush. I'm your host, Hiva, and it is the second time that we're doing a solo episode with full video and I'm feeling a little less nervous about it, a little more confident about it, a little more like hopefully things won't go wrong. Hopefully things won't go wrong, right? But if all goes as planned, you should be able to watch this entire episode on Spotify or you can just listen to the entire episode on whatever platform you generally listen on. So Love that for us. Okay, we're going to get right into it. I'm starting a new segment. I'm calling it DMs Unplugged. Uh, If you're wondering, I did use ChatGBT to come up with that segment name because I couldn't think of anything clever other than something I'd already heard. And isn't that just like a hard thing about life nowadays? Like everyone does everything, right? Every market is saturated. And so it's sometimes hard to come up with like a clever, unique name for something because everything's already been done. Um, Okay, that being said, (laughs) we're going to call it DMs Unplugged. And it's where I just go over things that have been popping off in my DMs a lot. So love that for us. Okay, number one, I've been getting a lot of like questions and comments on workouts, like what kind of workouts I'm doing right now, because I've talked a lot about how I've been working out. Now, I think I may have been overselling how much I'm exercising. Like it's really not like, like I'm not out here doing like 30 to 60 minute workouts ever. Um, So I do EMS two to three times. Nope. One to two times a week, not two to three times a week. That's just a straight up lie. (laughs) That's factually inaccurate. Um, One to two times a week, I've been doing EMS. If you're not familiar with EMS, um, it stands for electromagnetic stimulation, I believe. Uh, Maybe not, but like that is what it should stand for. So you basically put on a suit that's like an Iron Man suit and it has electrodes all over and the electrodes go on specific muscle groups. So you get like like biceps, triceps, you get lower, middle, upper back, you get um, lower abs, upper abs, um, what else? There's quads, hamstrings, glutes, and I think those are all the electrodes. And um, the electrodes stimulate the muscles. So you could literally wear the suit and not move at all, and like your muscles would still be working. But there is a trainer who comes <laughs> and puts the suit on you. And um, I'm obsessed with my trainer, Tatiana, like the way that I Sam and I, my dog Sam and I both like low-key fangirl over Tatiana. Like it's so creepy and I try to act like so cool. Like, oh, hey, Tatiana, what's up? But like internally, I'm like, I think you're the coolest bitch ever and like long-term would love to be best friends with you. (laughs) No, she's like so fucking cool. And, you know, I've actually worked with a lot of trainers throughout my life. Like you wouldn't think it because... I've been so vocal on the the past two and a half years of the podcast that I don't exercise, but there have been many phases of my life where I did exercise and I have worked with trainers. So I have a lot of experience with trainers and I can tell you for a fact that Tatiana is the best that I've worked with. Like the way that she understands the muscles and the body, like sometimes she'll say things like, put more weight in your big toe. And I'm like, thank you so much for that like subtle yet effective correction. Or she'll be like, 
you know, obviously I can't tell exactly if you're doing this right, but the way that your tendons look, it looks like you are actually doing this right. So little things like that. I love about Tatiana. Okay. I'm so sorry. Hold please. Because this is something that happens when I record video, I get paranoid that it's not actually recording. So I'm just going to give it a quick glance. Be right back. Yeah, we're good, baby. Um, okay, not even going to cut that out because it was like a one second pause. Like this is a tiny room. It took me three seconds to walk to where the camera was. Not to like break the fourth wall too much, but mm, here we are. Anyway, so I do EMS. It's a crazy workout. They say like 20 minutes of EMS equals like hours in the gym. I don't know. But, um, but it is like kind of a crazy workout. And it's only like you only work out for 20 minutes which is amazing. So I do that. I do a ton of walking. Um, that's always been my thing, even like throughout the past few years of me being so vocally like anti-exercise. I've always been a walking girly. Like it's not even exercise. It's like mental health to me. I've also heard this thing. I have to do more research on it, but basically one of the things that affects like our circadian rhythm and mental health, yada, yada, that I've heard, I've heard, I've heard is looking at broad horizons rather than like we spend so much of our days looking at these tiny screens. But what we need more of to be like in line with our nature is to be looking at broader horizons. So just like being able to be outside and walk does so much for me. Um, so there's that. And then I've been you know, like before I went to Australia, I like started getting into abs. I was doing this like really cheesy eight minute abs video from YouTube. It's like from the eighties hit me up. Like if you want an entry into exercising, I think it's great. It's actually like an effective workout. It's just eight minutes, which like mentally I can get it up to do an eight minute abs workout so much more than like anything else. Even if it were like an eight minute cardio, I'd be like, eh, I don't know about that. But like eight minute abs, I can get it up for. Um, so that's kind of what I was doing. And lately what I've been doing is there's this Instagram influencer named Caroline Deisler. She's um German. So actually in German, it would be pronounced Carolina, Carolina yeah. Um, so she, during the pandemic, started recording herself working out and posting them on her, on her Instagram. And she posts a bunch of shorter ones. I mean, there are longer ones also, but like, I don't do the longer ones again, because if I see like 45 minute workout, I'm like, yeah, I'm not here for that kind of life. But if I see like a 10 minute ab burn, 10 minute booty burn, some shit like that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, why not? I have 10 minutes. So I've been doing that. Um, my goal is to, well, I've talked about my goal. I want to do more cardio, which I'm still yet to find something that I like. And I also just have made like zero progress on that goal since last week. In all fairness, I've been very busy. So the fact that I feel like I've been doing anything at all should be good, right? And what's really great about those 10-minute workouts is that you can always squeeze them in and you can do multiple in a day and not do them back to back. So that's kind of what I've been doing. I really like the Caroline Deisler ones and um, they're free. Like I've tried subscriptions to a bunch of the online fitness things. Um, I'm not going to name, name names because I honestly didn't like any of them. And I'm shocked because some of them I've heard such good things about, but like in practice and doing them, I was like, no, this like actually isn't what I was looking for. So that's kind of where I'm at with the workouts. I do find the Caroline Deisler ones to be effective. And the good news is they're fucking free. So like you may as well try it. DM me if you want her handle, but it's kind of how it sounds. Um, okay. The other question that I got a bunch of times this week, and it's probably because I was like posting about workouts I was doing and things like that 
is people asking me about protein. Now, there is this joke in the vegan community that when you go vegan or vegetarian, people constantly start becoming like obsessed with your protein intake and like where you get protein from, right? And I'm guilty of this. I remember asking like vegetarians and vegans before I was vegan, like, oh, well, how do you get protein? Blah, 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 right? And it's like such a joke because it's actually like so not an issue, right? There has never in the history of humanity been someone who (laughs) like died of protein deficiency. Like that's not a thing. In fact, the only time we have even observed human beings being deficient in protein is if they're like severely, severely malnourished. Like if you're eating, you're okay on protein. Like it's not a thing versus the standard American diet actually has way too much protein in it. And the vast majority of Americans have way too much protein that they're getting. And that actually causes a lot of issue for kidneys and things like that. So as far as like, are we getting like, like protein is not the situation that we think it is. Um, just to kind of like break it down a little pro what a protein is, is a chain of amino acids. There are a bunch of amino acids. There are nine that are essential. And then there's a bunch of like non-essential. So non-essential means your body can make it on its own versus essential. You have to get from your foods. All plants have actually have all nine amino acids, we only consider it to be a complete source of protein if it has all nine above a specific level. So a lot of plants are low in certain amino acids, right? I actually can't remember. There's like one specifically that a lot of plants are low in, but if you eat a variety of plants then you will hit all nine essential amino acids and you'll get like plenty of protein. At the end of the day, we live in a very protein-obsessed society. And I feel like protein has been heralded for so many different things and it changes over time. Like we go through a lot of trends with like food and nutrition and diet culture. And I think the latest trend that we're in is that protein is like touted as necessary for hormone balance. I hear this a lot, right? And I was doing some research on this. I was like, okay, is protein actually... Excuse me, is protein actually necessary for hormone balance? And when you just do a quick Google at first, what you're going to get is a bunch of websites that are like, you need to eat protein to balance your hormones. But then when you go deeper into the science, like I was like really reading some studies, I was fascinated to learn that protein does not have this like effect on our hormones that we think it does, and that fiber is actually far more important. And so I looked at a bunch of studies, but all around like three specific types of hormones or like hormone areas. So number one was like sex hormones, right? And studies show that people with higher intake of animal fats and less fiber, which do tend to go in hand, Um, are more likely to have estrogen overload. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is estrogen overload? And I would point you to what are kind of like cliche symptoms of PMS. So like bloating, irritability, bad mood, not feeling great, um, bloating, (laughs) weight gain, water retention, things like that. Those are all symptoms of estrogen overload. So... Basically, what happens is when you don't eat enough fiber, you don't have anything to bind with excess hormones and help them secrete from your system. So you end up having too much estrogen in there, and that causes all of these symptoms. So actually, like eating more fat, eating more protein has like it's not like this like Pangea for female sex hormones that we think it is. It's actually likely to be the opposite. And what you actually need to be doing is eating a lot more fiber. Um, Now, another type of hormone that people like to get into is 
thyroid hormones, right? Because like we all are obsessed with let's let's be honest like we live in a society that is obsessed with aesthetics and specifically we're very into body weight we're a very skinny obsessed society and I do think that we were heading in a really great direction for a few years potentially thanks to the Kardashians who saw that coming but I mean now with like the Ozempic of it all like we're really entering a time where we're like really obsessed with being as thin as possible again and so we talk a lot about the thyroid and hypothyroidism and things like that which is like really not the situation that people think it is but let's just put that aside for now. Fish eaters are statistically way more likely to have hypothyroidism. And it's actually a very interesting reason why. So one of the things, one of the nutrients that you really need for your thyroid to work well, really like there are a bunch, but there are two main ones that are associated with the thyroid. One is iodine, it's a mineral. The other is selenium, it's also a mineral. Mercury and iodine are actually very similar looking in structure and mercury really mimics iodine. So the thyroid will absorb mercury by accident. Oh my God, I'm so sorry that I like don't know how to speak today. (laughs) The thyroid will absorb iodine, I mean mercury by accident thinking that it's iodine and then not absorb the iodine. So that leads to the thyroid not working very well. Mercury also activates estrogen receptors. So I would imagine that only drives your estrogen levels higher and higher still. Um, Now, why does this matter? Because our oceans are polluted with mercury and bigger fish have very high levels of mercury. The biggest offender is tuna. There are some smaller fish and seafoods that don't really absorb mercury as much. But statistically speaking, studies show that fish eaters, people who eat seafood, people who are like obsessed with this, like, oh, like seafood is so good for you. Seafood is so good for you actually tend to have thyroid issues. Um, Also, like what we're seeing statistically, like seafood really isn't as good for us as we once thought. Yes, the nutrients that are like the omega-3s, the types of omega-3s that are in the ocean are very, very good for us, but you can actually get those from seaweed. That's how fish get those omega-3s, by the way. Like animals are not this like magic reservoir of nutrients. They are getting them from plants, but they are burning a lot of those nutrients before it even enters into their flesh because they need it to stay alive because they are living, breathing, sentient beings. And a small percentage of them go into their flesh and then we eat the flesh. But there are far more direct ways to get those nutrients. Anyway, I don't mean this to be this like vegan propaganda thing. Like I really don't give a shit like what anyone wants to eat. I'm just sharing some of the science. And then the other hormone that's like very trendy these days or like hormonal things is like glucose and insulin and things like that. Studies show that a plant-based diet is shown to be really effective for glucose and insulin homeostasis. So essentially, like we don't see protein really benefiting hormones in this way. By the way, that last part is also because of fiber. Um, Also specifically, studies show that women who eat red meat have higher rates of blood sugar problems. Um, I've also heard this anecdotally a lot from people with type 1 diabetes, aka real diabetes, Um they say that if they eat vegan, they can tremendously decrease the amount of insulin that they have to take. Because like taking a ton of insulin, like artificial insulin is not very good for you. And so, yeah, like I met a girl who said she can, her insulin intake when she eats plant-based is a quarter of what she has to do when she eats animal proteins and things like that. Anyway, this is just all to say, like, I don't really like think about or consider my protein intake. I just eat a variety of plant foods and I trust that I'm getting enough protein. Um, 
I personally think that our protein obsession as a society comes from the thermogenic effect of food. So what do I mean by that? Um, There's this notion that like when you eat various foods, I mean, there's, there's a very real thing. When you eat various foods, it has an effect on to kind of dumb it down, to kind of simplify it on your metabolism. So every food that you eat, you have to burn fuel to be able to digest that food. So you may have heard this thing when we were younger of like, oh, celery is a negative calorie food because it takes more calories to digest celery than celery actually has calories. That is factually accurate it has like a negligible effect like it's not like if you sit around eating celery all day you're not going to be like burning loads of fat because of all the digestion effort that's not entirely how it works but it is technically correct so there's something with the thermogenic effect of protein where um it's higher than the other two macronutrient groups the other two macronutrient groups being fats and carbs right those are the three big macronutrient groups in general i would advocate to not like think too much about macronutrients but the thermogenic effect of fat and carbs is roughly equal i forget exactly what it is but for protein it's it's higher so you do like use more energy to digest proteins than you do fats and carbs Ultimately, the effects of this are roughly negligible. Is it like existent? Yes, it does exist, but it is roughly negligible. Like if you just sit around and eat protein all day, you're not going to be like burning off all the fats. Like at the end of the day, it really is in terms of weight loss or weight maintenance. It really and truly is more or less calories in, calories out. Again, there are nuances to it, but the nuances don't really matter. What does matter is that it's very easy to overeat when you're hyper fixated on what foods you're eating, on trying to not eat carbs specifically, fixated on protein, things like that. Also, like little asides, your body will convert other macronutrient groups to carbs if you don't eat enough carbs because that's our bodies need carbs. Like that's just how we are. Every living being on the face of this planet shares one part of their DNA like that, you know, swivel chain, whatever it's called. All of us share one part of our DNA, like everything from like a tree. I mean, a fucking like a piece of mushroom. Every living being on the face of this planet shares the fact or shares the part of our DNA that tells us how to digest carbs because that like we are carb digesters. That's what it means to be alive. It means to be eating carbs. And so if you don't eat enough carbs, your body will convert other macronutrient groups to carbs. And also if your body needs glycogen when the stores run out, it will break down your muscles to convert to glycogen, not your fat, because the process of breaking down the fat is actually far too dangerous. So let's just put all that aside. I do believe that we are all bio-individual and we have unique needs. So we all need different ratios of macros. Some people need a higher carb diet. Some people need a relatively lower carb diet. Now, we all need some carbs. That's non-negotiable. You really have to figure out what's right for your body. So like if you, like I have a friend who recently really upped her protein intake and she has like said that she's noticed such huge effects on her skin skin and her anxiety and things like that. And she um, thinks she might have PCOS or something. That's great. That's wonderful. Like if your body's responding to that, by all means do it. I'm just saying like, it is not this like band-aid or like this solution that we all think it is, right? Like we just for like our entire lives pretty much have been like 
inundated with protein, 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 protein. But again, statistically, studies show that it's not this fix-all that it is. It's not this cure-all that it is. I have a theory of where it comes from. I think it's from our societal obsession with weight loss. And we're like, oh, well, if we can just like eat all day and burn more, then like maybe that'll help us achieve our desired outcome of like being skinnier when like really the only thing that will help you achieve that outcome is just eating less at the end of the day. That's really all it is. That being said, if you are still kind of like fixated on protein and you're like, I don't know how to get this out of my head, I would say two things. Number one, who told you to be so fixated on protein? Because like it's probably not coming intrinsically. And then the number two thing I would say is like, can you fixate a bit on fiber instead? It's funny. I remember when I was in Australia, someone was like, oh, but like I need the protein to feel full. And it's like, no, you like probably don't actually. What you really need is fiber because I'm looking at how you're eating and you're eating no fiber. You're eating virtually zero fiber. 90% of Americans are deficient in fiber. 0% of Americans are deficient in protein. Okay, to put it in perspective. Now, there are good sources of both protein and fiber, and that would be beans, chickpeas, lentils, chia seeds, flax seeds, hemp seeds are all very high in protein and also very high in fiber. So if you are someone who's like currently really fixating on protein, I would challenge you to increase your intake of those foods. You're still going to be getting your, you know, (laughs) mommy dearest protein, but you will now also be getting fiber. Okay. So that's my two cents on the protein conversation. The other things I've been getting a lot of DMs about are um, essentially things that I think that I wellness guinea pig. That could be another segment. I did not use chat GBT for that. I just came up with it on myself. But I do think I like guinea pig a lot of like wellness trends and products and things like that. And I like to report back on you guys uh, to you guys. Don't know how to speak today. I don't know what's going on about some of these products and or like practices, but it's like things that I've been getting a ton of DMs about this week. Um, number one question, I got it a ton this week. Do I like my sauna blanket? What benefits do they have? Yada, yada. Um, I think the benefits like really like the touted benefits are like a reduction in inflammation and things like that. Um, There's a lot of research that indicates that it can help you produce more growth hormone, which we produce less of as we age. Um, Like a lot of like mood benefits, things like that. Um, I will say personally, what I notice is like, A, I just feel like I feel better. So yeah, like the mood benefits. B, like maybe it's like psychosomatic. I don't know. But I just feel like I'm like, like, I mean, it is supposed to help you detox, right? Now, specifically what I do for that is I will take chlorella before I get in the sauna blanket. And the reason I do that is because chlorella is a binder and it binds with toxins and then you can sweat them out. Um, I don't know, like, I don't know how toxic I was before, so I'm not entirely sure. I mean, listen, emotionally, mentally, super, super toxic. Like, I don't know how physically toxic I was, so... Like, I don't know if that's one of those bullshit wellness terms that we're just like way overusing. Like, what is the situation? I don't think people are just like riddled with toxins. Who knows? Whatever. I don't know. I can't speak to it, but I will say I think my body looks better when I use the sauna blanket consistently. Um, Does it actually help you lose weight? I don't know. Or is it just water weight? I don't know. Or is it like it helps you like move excess lymph out of your body? That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. Um, But it does 
feel like a cardiovascular workout to a certain, I mean, it does elevate your heart rate. Like that's, that goes without question. So it just feels like kind of like the easiest way to get a little bit of like cardio in. Um, and I can do a ton of work in there. I do my meditation in there and then I like get work done because a lot of my work I can do on my phone. And I sometimes will just bring my laptop right next to the blanket. That is one benefit of a sauna blanket versus like a sauna room that you you can get your hands out your head is free you can lay down there are all these benefits so yeah I do really like it a lot and I will say like I the benefits that I notice is like a like really glowing skin when I'm consistent with it I feel like my skin is way better b I feel like I just feel better I feel happier like I feel more refreshed and I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just like a sense of accomplishment. Who knows? Um, and then I feel like my body looks better. And I'll be honest with you. She's a vain fucking bitch. Um, the other thing I've been asked about a lot this week was my um, red light mask. Um, so I have the Den- Dr. Dennis Gross one. Um, I bought it, I don't know, maybe like two years ago. Um do I think it's doing anything? Okay, so it has three settings and most red light devices have three settings. So it's like blue, red, or like pink or purple, which is just the blue and the red mixed. And generally speaking, they say the red light is good for like healing, inflammation, um, anti-aging, repair, things like that. Really mainly like it's talked about in these devices for the anti-aging benefits, wrinkles, yada, yada. The blue is supposed to be good for acne. I always use it on the pink slash purple setting, which has both. I will say like, I feel like I'm pretty certain, like I can speak on this with like a good amount amount of certainty that I do think the blue light setting does a lot for acne and stuff. Um, Does the red light help with aging, wrinkles, things like that? I honestly, honestly don't know. I'm just not sure. Um, Ozzy uses it a lot when he you know, was not in Australia (laughs) Um, when he's around and he's consistent with it. And he says that he feels like it makes a difference. I honestly am not sure, but it's easy to use. Now, if you want to get a red light device, I would not buy one that's cheaper than the Dr. Dennis Gross one. There are a lot newer ones that have come out since I bought the Dr. Dennis Gross one. Um, are they better? I honestly don't know, but I would not buy something that's like $100, $200 like off of Amazon or even less than that. Those I'd be willing to bet do next to nothing. Instead, just like go get a laser treatment at the dermatologist once in a while. That actually we know does something. So yeah, that's kind of my two cents on that. Like the truth is I honestly don't no. Um, there's something else like this, like wand that came out in the past year or so that is like, I think the most powerful home device you can get now, if I were to buy something now, maybe I would buy that. Um, like it's, I think it's like more like a laser. It is very expensive though. It's like $2,500. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe Lima, something like that. L Y M A, something like that. I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, like the truth is I'm honestly not entirely sure, but like I have it, I use it. I kind of like it. It's quick also, which I like, um, been getting a lot of questions about my cold showers. I finally hit three minutes, by the way, under the cold shower. Now, do I do three minutes every day? No. Some days, like it's just harder to even motivate myself to do five minutes of it. So those days I'm just grateful if I get anything done at all, but I did break the three minute. So here are the purported benefits of cold exposure, or I should say intentional cold exposure. Um, It helps reduce inflammation. It increases immune function and improves circulation. It increases energy and alertness. Um, Now, I think the reason that it increases energy and alertness is because the heating of the body is associated with waking up. So I believe like two to three hours before you wake up is when your body temperature is at its all-time lowest. And it's actually 
the process of your body becoming warmer that wakes you up, assuming you don't use an alarm or something like that. It's actually like if you were to naturally wake up, it's because your body body is becoming warmer. So when you intentionally expose it to cold, when you get out, your body will start heating. And that heating of your body is what's bringing more alertness to you, I believe. Um, reduced stress is another benefit and weight loss is another documented benefit of intentional cold exposure. So this is really interesting. We have different types of fat cells and, um, what we think of as fat, like the fat we don't like on our belly or whatever is white fat. White fat is essentially stored energy. It's there so that like if there's a famine or something, your body has something to rely on. It's what happens when you consume more energy than you put out. Energy is another word for calories in this setting, right? Um, now there's another type of fat called brown fat. Brown fat is mainly like along our spines in the upper neck, upper back area primarily, but I think all along the spine, maybe a couple of other places like the clavicles and stuff. I can't remember exactly. And brown fat is actually, um, less voluminous than white fat is. So it's not like taking up a ton of space. Um, but what brown fat is metabolically active. So what happens is brown fat is how you keep your body warm. Now, when you expose yourself to cold, you either increase your brown fat levels or you activate them. I've read a bunch of different things, but as we age, our amount of brown fat goes down and down and down. And like babies have the most brown fat. And that's because babies and young children actually have like no mechanism of warming themselves. Like babies can't shiver. Young children can't shiver. It's only the brown fat that is able to help them deal with the cold. Now, brown fat actually makes you burn more white fat. Like brown fat increases your metabolism. Brown fat like does all these things for you other than just keeping you warm. So I guess like when you do intentional cold exposure, again, either it activates the brown fat or it helps convert the white fat slowly into brown fat. It's very unclear. I've read a lot of different things, but it's the activation of the brown fat that then induces the weight loss results. Now, personally, the reason I wanted to start doing the cold exposure is because I'm so bad at tolerating cold. Like I am so bad at tolerating cold. Even the entire time I was in Australia in February, it was the middle of the their fucking summer, I would barely get in the ocean because I was so fucking cold. And so for me, like now I actually know that it makes sense that like scientifically how it happens when you do all this cold exposure, it makes you more tolerant of the cold because it's that brown fat activation. Because again, brown fat is like what makes you capable of tolerating the cold. But like to me, it just kind of made sense. I was like, well, the more you expose yourself to cold, the better you get at dealing with it, right? It's kind of like anything else in life, right? Why wouldn't it work that way? And so that's why I started exp- doing the cold showers because I was like, I want to be able to tolerate the cold better like and like be less of a baby about it next summer when I'm back in Australia. I want to be in the ocean more and I want it to be less debilitating for me. So that was one of my motivations. And then the other was just like mental resilience, like just doing something. I mean, I talked about this a lot last episode, so I'm not going to repeat the whole saga, but like when you do things that are difficult for you, when you push against the boundary of comfort and towards growth, that's where you grow. It's your growth edge, right? And so it was that mental resilience that I was really trying to train in myself. Okay, the last um, product that I got a ton of DMs about was the Aura Ring. Um, The reason I got the Aura Ring was for it to take my temperature for charting purposes, so for birth control purposes. I don't look at it a ton, to be honest. I did this morning. 
Um, I do intend to use that other app that Stella recommended. Um, but I do find the sleep data to be so interesting. And it is so like, I found it fascinating that I was like sleeping so shitty in Australia. And like a lot of my metrics were really fucking off. Um, in Australia. And I think it's because the sleep was so fucked up, which honestly could have been because I wasn't taking my gummies. By the way, obsessed with my gummies. Just a quick plug if you want to check them out. It's Nama CBDs, N-A-M-A. CBD is the company and you can use code HIVA15. So that's H-I-W-A-A-1-5. It's HIVA A-15. H I W A A one five for six hundred and thirty percent off. Just getting obviously fifteen percent off. Um, I am obsessed with them. Like the way that I notice the effect that they have on my sleep is like unreal. Um, so yeah, I do find the Aura Ring to be really interesting for looking at trends. One thing I've really been fucking with lately is heart rate variability, but I'm not gonna get into that today because. Um, there, I, I've been talking for a really long time and I want to get to the actual content of what I want to talk about today, because this is what I wanted to talk about last week and I didn't even get to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast and one person was giving another person advice on the podcast. It was like something about something with a friendship. I honestly can't remember. But the person who was giving the advice kept being like, yeah, and I think it's like your anxious avoidant attachment style that like made you behave like this. And then the person who was receiving the advice was like talking about the friend in this scenario. And then the person giving the advice again was like, yeah, and her anxious avoidant. And so the person receiving the advice was like, wait, so I'm anxious avoidant and she's anxious avoidant. So we're all anxious avoidant. Like what? And it was clear the person giving the advice didn't entirely know what she was talking about. And the person receiving the advice was like confused as fuck. And here's the thing with attachment theory and attachment styles, there are a lot of things that are like spoken about incorrectly or like just used a little incorrectly and stuff. And there's just a lot of myths that I see out there. So I wanted to kind of like dispel some of the myths and common confusions and also do a little bit of a refresher on attachment theory because we do talk about it a lot. So attachment theory is a branch of psychology that focuses on the relationships between people. Um, it theorizes that young children Children need to develop a relationship with at least one primary caregiver for normal social and emotional development. A child's attachment style is formed through the type of bond that develops between themselves and their caregivers. Through the way that their parents met their needs, a child forms expectations about their world, and the people in it. It's really based on this evolutionary need for love and connection because without it, historically speaking, we died. So a person's adult subconscious views on love and connection really depend on their childhood perception of the availability of love and connection and also the safety of love and connection. So we're just going to jump right in. 
I would say one of the first myths. So it's actually not really a myth. It's technically true. I just think it's an incorrect way of looking at things is that there are four distinct styles. So again, this is technically true. Yes, there are four attachment styles that we look at, but I think it's not the best way to think about attachment theory. I think a better approach is that there are two axes for attachment theory. One is anxiety and one is avoidance. And both of these axes are like a spectrum, right? Like the, we are learning more and more that these things that we used to think were black and white are actually all on a spectrum, right? Like you're not, you're not autistic or not autistic. Like we're all somewhere on the autism spectrum. Like you're not gay or straight. We're all somewhere on the hetero to homo spectrum. Like there, there are spectrums for pretty much anything. And I think anxiety and avoidance are the same thing. You can be anywhere on either of these spectrums. Now, there are four styles that are in, in each quadrant. So if you are low on anxiety and low on avoidance, you're secure. And if you're high in anxiety and high on avoidance, um, you're what's called fearful avoidant, or there's other terms for it that I'll get into in a second. And, you know, there's the other two. So I just want to talk about what the anxiety and the avoidance axes are. So anxiety is when you tend to have like some level of preoccupation around relationships and like it generally is marked with low sense of self-worth is the anxiety spectrum. So it's marked by a fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, things like that. The avoidance axis is completely different and it's your perception of the safety of relationships, of the safety of love and connections, and the availability of love and connections. So when you're high on the avoidance axes, it's generally because you receive the message at some point in your childhood that love and connection is either not safe or that it's not even going to happen. So you have this like preconceived notion that it's just, it's not going to work out. So if you are high in anxiety and low in avoidance, that's what we call anxious attachment. There are other words for it. We'll get to that in a second. And if you are high in avoidance, but low in anxiety, that tends to be avoidant attachment again. So let's just get into the confusion on the labels because there are different labels for the four styles. And there is like a correct scientific explanation as to these different labels, but they're used interchangeably and often incorrectly. So there's secure attachment. We're all clear on that. We all call it secure attachment. So those are just people who are like capable of being in healthy relationships, but they don't have to be in a relationship. Um, they're good on their own. They have a high view of others. They have a high view of themselves. That's always called secure attachment. So that is being low on the avoidance axes or spectrum and low on the anxiety spectrum. And then there's anxious attachment. This is also called preoccupied attachment. That's when you're high on the anxiety spectrum, but low on the avoidance spectrum. I think preoccupied is actually a really nice term for it because people with anxious attachment are generally very preoccupied with the relationships. And it depends on where exactly the anxious attachment comes out. It usually comes out in romantic relationships, but some people also have a lot of anxiety in their non-romantic and their platonic relationships, etc. But it is a general preoccupation with it. And it comes from that like low sense of self-worth and that general fear of abandonment. Um, people with this attachment style have have a chronically activated attachment system. And that means um, basically your attachment system is this like evolutionary developed thing that alerts you when 
it thinks that there is basically when your brain thinks that there is like a danger of a lack of connection, because again, evolutionary speaking, a lack of connection and love equals death. And so your brain automates when you're like, oh shit, like there might not be enough connection and I might die. People with this attachment style have a chronically activated attachment system. Now, what we call anxious attachment or preoccupied attachment in adults and children is referred to as anxious ambivalent attachment style. So those are all the different terms for that attachment style. But again, what we're talking about is high on the anxiety spectrum and low on the avoidance spectrum. Now, there's another type of attachment that we often call avoidant attachment. We also often call it dismissive avoidant. In a child, it is referred to as anxious avoidant attachment style. Now, that term anxious avoidant is the most misused term I ever see, and I'll address it separately in a second. But what we are calling avoidant or dismissive avoidant is someone who is high on the avoidance spectrum and low on the anxiety spectrum. So this is like often your stereotypical fuck boy. It's the person who like doesn't really want to commit, doesn't want to settle down. They tend to be an island. They tend to have like a low subconscious view of the other, other people. They tend to be very independent, things like that. And then there's fearful avoidant attachment style or disorganized attachment style. In a child, it's referred to as fearful avoidance um, in adulthood, disorganized or fearful avoidant is used interchangeably. These are people who are high on both the avoidance spectrum and the anxiety spectrum. So there are people who really, really do want love and connection and all of those things, but also have a subconscious view that love and connection is not safe and that it'll hurt them. And as you can imagine, this creates a lot of confusion and frankly, disorganization. There's a lot of push-pull, a lot of hot and cold, things like that. Now I want to talk about that anxious avoidant term. I see people I see people using this as a term for all three types of insecure attachment. So I see people using it as a term for anxious attachment. I see people using it as a term for um, dismissive avoidant attachment, and I see it as a term people use for um, fearful avoidant attachment. It is most commonly associated with dismissive avoidant though, because in childhood it is called anxious avoidant, but in a adulthood, it's called dismissive avoidant or just avoidant. So I think we should stop using that term because it's highly confusing. <sighs> okay. So that's kind of that on the four attachment styles, where they lie on that spectrum, why I think it's more effective to talk about the spectrum, because at the end of the day, these labels really are just referring to where you sit on both of those spectrums. So I think it's like a lot more useful to just talk about where you sit on those spectrums. Anyway, another common myth that I see and something that I see um, talked about incorrectly a lot is I think that we confuse what is called protest behavior with avoidance. So there's something called protest behavior, which we see when someone's attachment system is activated, which again, chronically happens with people with anxious attachment or preoccupied attachment. Again, those are just synonyms for each other. And what happens is your attachment system gets activated and you're like, fuck, I'm going to lose this person. So think like you're in the early stages of dating someone and Things are going well, and then they're not texting you as often. And you start getting anxious, and you're like, oh my God, is he still into me? Oh my God, did he lose interest? Oh my God, is he not into me anymore? Like, fuck, I thought this was going so well. Like, what happened? Did he find someone else? Did he meet someone else? Did did I say that thing that was cringy and now he doesn't like me anymore? Oh my God, did I come on too strong and I like scared him off or like whatever, right? And you start getting all those anxious thoughts. And then think what happens next you start kind of strategizing and you're like, okay, 
I haven't heard from him in 12 hours. So whenever he does text me, I'm going to wait 15 hours to text back. Or maybe instead you're like, oh, let me make an excuse to hit him up. Like maybe I left, you know, my bracelet at his place. And you know well and good that you didn't leave your fucking bracelet at his place. But you're just looking for any excuse to reach out. Or, or you know that he goes to this one coffee shop every morning. So you're going to stage a little run in or, or let's say like you're in the same circle of friends. So, you know, you're going to see him Friday night. And so you make your guy friend come with you Friday night to that party that, you know, he's going to be at that you're invited to, too. So it's like totally normal that you're going, but you're just going to try to make him jealous. Or like maybe you post on your Instagram stories, like a bunch of stories that like allude to you going on dates or something to try to get him jealous. Or, or let's say he does hit you up and now you're like, you're freaking out so hard that he wasn't into you. So you're like, oh, let's just end things. Or like you just text him and you're like, let's just end things. But you don't actually want to end things. You just want to get his attention. These are all forms of protest behavior. Protest behavior is a way to try to reestablish connection when the attachment systems become activated and you're really afraid of losing connection. And it's funny because a lot of protest behavior actually looks opposite of what you're trying to achieve. Like when you fake try to break up with someone or threaten to break up with them, when you don't actually want to break up, all you want is more connection, right? Or like you uh, ignore them, play games, things like that. You try to make them jealous, things like that. It's like not even what you want to be doing. It's the opposite of what you want to be doing. But it's because you have this convoluted idea in your mind that maybe if you play these various types of games, that'll reestablish connection. Now, where I see protest behavior confused a lot is like people will think that it's like an indicator of avoidance or fearful avoidance, right? Um, I'll see a lot of people be like, oh, if you threaten to break up with someone that like that's an indicator that you're fearful avoidant attachment style or disorganized attachment style. Disorganized attachment style is exceptionally rare. It's the rarest of all the attachment styles. You most likely do not have disorganized attachment style. Disorganized attachment style comes from more severe childhood trauma. Trauma. It generally happens to kids who grew up in a household where there was abuse. It's extremely rare. It's not common. What we tend to confuse are protest behaviors. And I think it's because we're way too preoccupied with categorizing and labeling things. This goes back to my general notion of the four attachment styles. Like we're so preoccupied with like labeling things and like diagnosing things and categorizing things that we're completely missing the underlying energetic. And that's what matters way more. It matters a lot more what your intentions are when you do something. So are you ignoring? someone because like you actually don't really want to talk to them. Okay. That could point to some avoidance or you ignoring them because you're hoping that by ignoring them, it'll capture their interest and it'll make them pine after you more. That's protest behavior. So like we really need to be focusing on the underlying energetic, on the underlying intentions, on our subconscious beliefs, and less on what's happening actually in the material plane, because that's that's just a symptom of everything that's beneath everything else. Um, another myth out there is that you have to have a perfect childhood to be secure. The truth is, um, parents only have to get it right about 60% of the time. Now, some pillars of security are safety, being seen, being comforted, being valued and being supported and developing a sense of independence and autonomy. Those are the pillars that will lead to a secure adult Those are the pillars of a secure childhood. Um, On the contrary, a very common myth that I see, especially in my work, is that you are only affected by major trauma. So a very, very common thing that I hear from listeners of the show, from Blush Academy members until they sign up and actually get rolling and whatnot, is like, well, I don't understand why I am this way because I had a perfect childhood or I had a great childhood or like whatever. Um, 
A, there is no such thing as a perfect childhood. It quite literally doesn't exist. None of us had a perfect childhood, but let's just put that aside for now. A lot of what matters for trauma in general is not actually what happened to us, but it's how we are impacted by what happens to us. And really what matters is like our perception of what happened. And when we are children, we don't have like the ability to understand nuance. We see things as very black and white and we also internalize everything. So like when you're very, very young, if your dad is like just in a bad mood, you don't understand that he's just a human being going through emotions and in a bad mood. You read that as like, there's something wrong with me. I caused a bad mood. And also like this person who I love who like loves me and was like so wonderful to me yesterday all of a sudden is in this really bad mood like this to me like you receive the message that love is not safe love is not consistent love is not stable one day love is great the next day love is really shitty and I don't know what to ever expect okay a myth that I think is somewhat associated with this one in a different way is that anxious or preoccupied attachment style comes from childhood neglect. I'm not entirely sure where this myth got started. Here's the truth. All three forms of insecure attachment come from misattunement. The truth is that we are all unique and have unique needs. So just like I was talking about with carbs and proteins and macronutrients, the same thing is true for our emotional needs. So it's really hard to draw a bright line rule as to what kind of parenting results and what kind of attachment wound for each person. That being said, there is this general thing. Generally speaking, anxiety, so the uh, attachment level anxiety, not generalized anxiety, but I mean the anxiety spectrum within attachment theory comes from parents who are not honoring a child's needs for independence, whereas the avoidance spectrum comes from parents who could not honor the child's need for emotional expression and connection. So we all have all of these needs. We all have needs for independence. We all have needs for emotional expression. We all have needs for connection. Um, And generally speaking, fearful avoidance or disorganized attachment style comes from abuse. All of these are forms of generational trauma. So like what I hear a lot is like, why do I have a fear of abandonment? I've never been abandoned. Well, that's not entirely how it works. In fact, a fear of abandonment often comes from the opposite of abandonment. So it comes from you actually needing independence as a young child and your parents not honoring your need from independence. And what happens when that happens over and over again is that you receive the message that like love comes from being really attached to someone and that if you're not fully attached to that person, then there's danger because your parents instilled that in you every time they didn't honor your needs for independence. Not sure if this is all making sense, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's what really does tend to come from neglect and it doesn't have to be massive neglect is avoidance. And I want to get into that next because another myth out there is that dismissive avoidance are narcissists or assholes or whatever. Here's the truth. Dismissive avoidance, like the rest of us, are acting on their own unresolved trauma. Now, dismissive avoidance tend to have parents who also were dismissive avoidance because, again, this is all generational trauma. And so the message that they received all the time were things like they may have heard things like toughen up or you're being a baby or, you know, parents who were ignoring their cries or parents who try to instill premature sense of independence in a child. We see this a lot with like certain types of sleep training and things like that, or like fervorizing methods, right? Where they tell parents to ignore a child's cries when really what that child needed was their parents to be responsive to their needs. And so when this happens, happens repeatedly, you learn to be an island. You learn that the people who you love will not support you and that you can't ever get the love that you want and you start to shut down. 
So dismissive avoidants really are not trying to be assholes. They subconsciously do not believe that love will ever be safe and comfortable because that's all they've ever experienced. So it's really hard to switch from that to all of a sudden being like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. And that brings me to the last myth that I want to cover today. And that is the myth that your attachment style is stagnant. People act like their attachment style is their fucking like house assignment in Harry Potter. Like like the sorting hat went on their head and was like, you're anxious avoidant, which (laughs) again is a term we need to stop using because it's confusing and it's misleading. Like you're not a Hufflepuff. Like this isn't like you don't just like live, breathe and die your attachment style. And I think a lot of it again goes back to this like dogmatic, rigid approach of these four attachment styles instead of thinking of them as two spectrums that you can be at any point on in any given time. You are not your attachment style. Your attachment style is a snapshot of where you are at a given point in your life based on everything you've experienced and how much of that experience you have actually processed. So when you do trauma therapy work, it will change where you are exactly. And anyone, no matter what their attachment style is, no matter how extreme it is, is capable of moving towards secure attachment. And the way that you do that is by processing through the childhood trauma that caused those attachment wounds, the attachment trauma that you experienced, whether it was parents who were too helicopterish, too overbearing, whether it was parents who, you know, ferberized you and weren't meeting your needs, whether it was parents who weren't present enough, whether it was parents who were too present or whether it was parents who were actually abusive. No matter what you actually experienced in childhood, whether it was like very minor little T trauma that was like super innocuous or whether it was more massive trauma, you can work through that trauma. And there are very good trauma therapy um, modalities out there. I really advocate for EMDR and somatic therapy, um, but there are lots of trauma therapy mod uh methods out there once you work through that trauma you can completely move towards secure attachment and if you want more assistance with this or if you have more questions about this the blush academy has courses on attachment theory um that run the full spectrum of things that can experience in relationships and they use tools from those trauma therapy modalities that I talked about to really rewire your brain on a subconscious level to truly believe that you're worthy of love, that love is safe, that you won't be abandoned, and that you can be in healthy relationships. I mean, look at myself. I was fucking crazy. I was out of my goddamn mind. I had never had a stable, easy, safe relationship. And I was able to work through all of those things. And I'm now in an insanely healthy relationship that also I'm extremely fulfilled by. And the way that I got there is exactly what I teach in the Blush Academy. So if you want more resources on that, check out the Blush Academy. There's a link in the show notes. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was so much fun. Again, hopefully the full video is up on Spotify for you to watch, to re-listen to. If you learned something in today's episode, please share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. Um, You know the drill, rate, review, subscribe. Wherever you're listening to the show right now, you should see somewhere where you can either hit follow or hit subscribe or a plus button. And if you scroll down, you should see somewhere where you can leave five stars and leave a review. It helps the show so much. The more reviews we can get there, the more you know, this whole message spreads and the more there will be healthy people in the dating pool for you to date and the more there will be healthy people out there for you to have friendships with, etc. So spread the show, improve my life, improve your life. <laughs> okay. Love you guys. Talk next week.